الجزيره بودكاست A new wave of Russian strikes across Ukraine while the death toll mounts in the bloody battle for Bakhmut. But with both sides seemingly as far apart as ever, is the war locked in a violent stalemate? And what chances for diplomacy? I'm Laura Kyle and you're listening to the Inside Story podcast where we dissect, analyze and help define major global stories. Let's bring in our guests now. And in Moscow, Pavel Felgenhauer, a defense and military analyst. In Odessa, Hannah Schlest, director of security programs at the think tank Ukrainian Prism. And in Bath, England, Patrick Bury, an associate professor in security at the University of Bath. A very warm welcome to each of you. Hannah, let's go to you first, because these Russian missiles, they've been hitting cities and sites across Ukraine, including there in Odessa, where you are. What happened? Where did they strike? You know, the, uh, this attack was uh, one, uh, again, for the critical infrastructure, the uh, predominantly energy infrastructure around the country being targeted. Not so successful as previously, but we also need to understand that this attack was the first big attack after the months of more or less calmness and smaller missiles used against Ukraine. Plus, they used approximately 81 uh, different type of missiles that also demonstrate the uh, capacities of the uh, uh, Russian strikes as for now, because they use something like five or six different types of the missiles, including six Kinjal. And what is interesting that that is uh, very rare uh, missiles. Russians didn't have a lot of them. And the previous year, they used the same amount as they used during this night. So that demonstrates that each time for such a big attack, they are accumulating efforts and accumulating those missiles that they can use. Mm. Plus, Iranian Shahed drones. Again, this night, they were used. Pavel, what was the point of these strikes? Oh, well, officially, it was announced in Moscow that these were reprisals for an alleged Ukrainian-led so-called partisan uh, raid in Bryansk Oblast, which Russia described as a, a terrorist attack, and the Ukrainian authorities says they didn't have anything to do with it. Uh, so this was some kind of kind of reprisal, mostly again targeting Ukrainian uh, power grid infrastructure, where apparently the Russian very long already campaign of such attacks will rather fail because uh, the power grid in Ukraine has uh, managed to continue and Mm. has the Ukrainians have managed to uh, cover up their losses and the power grid is functioning. So in the strategic way, it didn't work, but tactically, yes, it's a spectacular attack. Spectacular attacks, Patrick. Do do you agree with that? What's the strategy here, as you see it, from the Russians using all these different types of missiles, including these hypersonic missiles? Well, of course, <clears throat> the use of the hypersonics and the different missile systems is to try to get around an increasingly uh, capable air defense suite that Ukraine has. Um, and obviously, we've seen them hitting higher percent or being able to target higher percentage of Russian missiles um, than they were, say, in the early stages or steadily getting better because the new systems are coming in, whether it's this Jeopard or the Patriot system, et cetera, et cetera. Um, they're getting a slowly but getting a layered air defense system. So using more advanced uh, missiles, using um, fired from different kinds of platforms with different trajectories just makes it more difficult to track everything and, and take it down. Um, the strategy, look, I think the reprisal thing is, is definitely accurate. But mm. I also think, you know, what we see is a, um, a, a pattern here 
basically Russia suffers a setback and then it unleashes a, a series of barrage attacks. And that's been going on since last summer. You remember the attacks when they started off on shopping centres, etc., um, right through to the then the concerted campaign against critical national infrastructure over the winter to, to try and put the pressure on Ukrainians um, and a, a sort of amounting to what would, would be a, comparable to a, a strategic bombing campaign, say, in the Second World War. The point is, these, these campaigns don't work. There's no evidence to suggest, apart from a local air, at a local level, that the, the population's morale has changed for the worse. You know, just, there's no evidence to suggest that. Why would you, if you were getting bombed, then go, oh, yeah, OK, let's give up? It just doesn't work like that. You go, no, I, I want to kill them. Mm. Hannah, I mean, you are there. Do you agree with, with Patrick that this does nothing to change the morale in the Ukraine? I mean, it must, at the very least, be absolutely terrifying for people. Uh, definitely, that is terrifying. Try to spend your night in the shelter or with the sounds. Uh, trust me, you would not like it. Uh, but the question is that we are living with these for the whole year. And it is the psychology of people you used to all the difficulties that you can have. That's one thing. With this type of attacks, uh, the situation is absolutely the same. Uh, first of all, you cannot be prepared for this. You don't know which region uh, can be targeted. Today we had Odessa, Lviv, Zhutomir, so all around the country. At the same time, uh, really we were worrying in the beginning of the winter uh, with all these attacks against the critical infrastructure because when it is cold, uh, minus 10, minus 15, without electricity and heating, that's difficult. But we survived this winter uh, both because we bought all the gener diesel generators, other types of the power banks, so all the additional supply that allowed the small business and big companies to work and households to work. At the same time, uh, uh, spring came. So definitely that's easier. You're not afraid of being cold, for example. And uh, people just uh, looked at this and definitely becoming just more angry. Uh, but at the same time, you know, anger is probably not the best term that Ukrainians feel against Russians um, and against these attacks. Disgust, that's something uh, that all people are discussing. Uh, tiredness and disgust, like to the Kuparachas, you know, when you're coming to the old house. They are coming and coming and you're fighting and fighting, but you understand that one day you are winning. Mm. Uh, Pavel, th these attacks, just to stay with them for one more moment, these attacks, they did strike the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant and they've taken it offline. That is considered to be extremely worrying by the rest of the world, by the IAEA uh, especially. Does Russia see that as a victory? Uh, well, victory would be that if the Ukrainians uh, agreed to a kind of, uh, if not a, a peace agreement, a ceasefire based on more or less uh, the line of control as it is right now, accepting Russian advances and uh, Russian taking over parts of Ukraine. Uh, uh, that's not happening. Mm. That was most likely the hope of this whole campaign as it began to uh, uh, deprive the Ukrainians of power grid during the winter. It didn't work out as it was intended, because, well, these missiles, well, quite a number is landing, but if compared to how many Americans could send, say, cruise missiles, well, this is not very much. And most of the missiles that are being used were basically designed originally as delivery systems of nuclear weapons. And when they carry conventional ones, well, they're not as effective, just simply they're not as accurate 
because the, when you're using nuke, you don't really need that much accuracy. Mm. Uh, I mean, in any war with NATO, as where the Russian general staff was planning, a massive use of nuclear weapons was envisaged, and then the number of the, such attacks would have been really deadly. Uh, but then, again, this is not a nuclear war. This is a, a war if not, with, with NATO. It's a war by proxy. And this thing is not working. And Syria used such missiles were also massively used, but they were kind of just an addition. Mostly it was Russian bombers having hanging overhead and bombing. Here they can't because the Ukrainian air defenses are too good for that. Mm. And the Russian Air Force is not good enough. So this is not really working strategically as it was intended. Okay, well, let's zone in then, Pavel, on the battlefield and look at Bakhmut, where perhaps one could argue that Russia is having some more success. We've seen the Wagner Group claim control of the eastern part of the city. How likely is it, Pavel, do you think that the group is going to take the whole city in the coming days? Uh, well, the Ukrainian command and political leadership apparently decided to hang on in Bakhmut. Apparently, what's happening there right now on the ground is that the Ukrainians retreated uh, behind the line of the Bakhmutka River, mm. which is a narrow but uh, rather steep banks river. They blew up several bridges, and that it more or less divides the city in half. And that's a reasonable position to take in the, to continue uh, defensive action. So that means uh, taking half is not doesn't mean they'll take all very soon. Okay. Right now, there's something of a pause there, as I understand. A pause, but it has been a battle of attrition, hasn't it, with huge losses on both sides. Hannah, why is Zelensky refusing to pull forces out of Bakhmut? Even as it was reported, it does appear that his top military commander suggested that they should retreat. Uh, we have this uh, news only in the foreign media. We don't have the confirmation that the mm. commanders asked uh, uh, to be retreated. Mm. Uh, so that is, let's say, we, we don't know what is the truth here. But in general, we need to understand that Russians are trying to uh, um, take the city since July. And uh, that was very uh, important uh, for drawing their forces out, meaning that they are losing a lot of forces, a lot of equipment and ammunition there. Uh, that is good for us because they cannot advance and they are losing there. At the same time, strategically, you're right, this city maybe is not so important, but psychologically, that could be very important for the Russian Federation because they can prove that since July they got at least some town. And we need to understand that Bakhmut is quite a small town, 20,000 people. It's uh, like a big village uh, in Ukraine. Uh, it was a symbolic city. There are nothing important in it, historical and uh, salt mines, wherever, but not from the military point of view. But uh, as the symbol, as the symbol, we called it the fortress Bakhmut because of all those attacks happening from there, those battles. That's why definitely uh, uh, the forces as for now are standing. Plus, that's allowed not to uh, allow Russians to go ahead mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. we understand that Mr. Putin announced his desire to occupy completely the Donetsk region. We already heard several deadlines that he put for his forces. Each time it's not happening. So it is ruining the strategic uh, uh, plans of the Russian Federation as well. Patrick, what do you think about this battle for Bakhmut? As Hannah points out, it's been going on for many, many months. Huge losses on both sides. But it is much more symbolic than strategic. Seven months now. Yes, I think so. Look, uh, 
obviously political reasons, Russia needs a win. And therefore, this was the place it was going to be. Um, uh, and again, it would have given them more control of Donetsk and potentially be under their control if there was a negotiated settlement. Uh, there's the internal politics thing between Prigozhin and the... Uh, the, the Russian military, and he said he'll take it, so he's got a lot of interest to do so. The Russian military also keen to undermine him and take it themselves. Um, you've also got the, because it's gone on so long and sucked in so many people, and so many people have been killed, maybe 30,000 Russians, um, you're going to be in the thousands of Ukrainians at least, uh, there's a blood sacrifice there. And when there's blood capital being expended, there is then political capital, which comes with that. Yeah, the fortress Bakhmut. It, it suddenly becomes a bit more important than it was, like Verdun in the First World War, you know. Il ne passeront pas is what the French said, because they lost so many people. Um, unfortunately, it's a sort of reverse psychology. That doesn't mean you should kill more people because you're, you've lost so many people, as I know from serving in Afghanistan. But nevertheless... Um, I think really what's going on here, if you zoom out, what this is about, I would view this as a shaping operation by the Ukrainians. That means they're trying to set the conditions using this operation for other operations. What are they trying to do? We know that they've got a defensive advantage in Bakhmut. They're at least killing um, three times the amount of Russians for every one they lose. It could be up between five and seven. Yeah. And therefore, it's in their uh, interest to continue this battle as long as they can uh, do so without getting a lot of forces encircled or cut off. Yeah. Um, what they're trying to do is drain Russia and keep Russia attacking them at a place of their choosing. And that means that Russia is not actually going on to the defensive. Its focus is on taking back mood. And that makes a lot of sense for Ukraine right now. So, Pavel, what's your response to that, that in Bakhmut, the idea or the thought is, the estimate is that three to five Russians are being lost for every Ukrainian. Are you hearing those sort of numbers in Russia? Is that common knowledge in Russia? Well, it's very hard to say because both sides are not publishing their actual numbers of casualties and who's losing more. Uh, I would assume that it's kind of more or less equal, most likely. Like in the mentioned Battle of Verdun in 1916, actually the defending um, French lost more than the attacking Germans. Uh, but basically it was more or less the same, but they lost a bit more. But it's highly symbolic. If Bakhmut falls, that's a great moral booster for the Russians and for the Kremlin in internal politics. And apparently military considerations are taking second kind of place here for both sides. It's a, a, a battle of wills like Stalingrad, like Verdun, uh, uh, a meat grinder actually. And the military considerations are secondary. Mm. How significant, Pavel, is it for the Wagner boss, Yevgeny Prigozhin to have this victory. He's becoming a very powerful voice uh, on the battlefield and certainly is quick to criticise the Kremlin, the Defence Ministry, if he does not feel he's getting enough support. How significant is he becoming? Well, he's, yes, he's uh, very significant. He has a private army that has uh, dramatically expanded during the last uh, year. Uh, from several thousand deployed somewhere in Syria or in the Central African Republic or I don't know where to tens of thousands of fighters with his own uh, tanks and artillery. And he's close personally to Vladimir Putin and he's 
publicly attacking the defense minister and the defense ministry, his uh, second-in-command, General Gerasimov. Uh, so he's a very vocal political figure in, in Russia with his own private army fighting out there and with connections in the Kremlin, and he's financing it. So for him, it's a very high uh, importance uh, uh, thing to take over Bakhmut. And for the defense ministry, most likely they don't want him to take over Bakhmut and get the laurels mm. of victory because he's their political opponent. So there's a lot of infighting happening there uh, on the Russian side. Patrick, when you look at this infighting happening uh, between the Wagner Group and the defense ministry, does, do, you, do you see it posing a problem for Russia in presenting a united front against Ukraine? I think that goes without saying. You know, you, you don't want your, your a large mercenary army at odds with your army. Um, mm. But listen, Russia's had problems with command and control and leadership since day one of this war. So um, it's par for the course at this stage, you know. I think really, you know, the, the, the issue with Bakhmut and like, where do they go if they take Bakhmut? Say they fall, mm. right? So the, the land to the west of Bakhmut, directly west, is on a higher ground, easier to defend. The two roads which lead northwest and southwest, the northwest ones are Kramatorsk-Slavyansk. You know, there'll be defensive lines around there. There'll be defensive lines around Kramatorsk. Um, it, it doesn't change the calculus that much, you know. So therefore, my view on this, again, strategically, this is about reserves. Yeah, it's about draining combat power. If Ukraine can get through this, you know, grinding attritional warfare without committing the reserves, which it needs to keep back and intact for the summer, where it's going to try and attack in probably one or two places, uh, that's a victory for, for Ukraine. Um, Russia is trying to take this in a meat grinder uh, effect. Uh, it does have some uncommitted reserves as far as we understand. But the chances of them being able to conduct a, a, a breakout and then take vast ways of, of Ukrainian territory is questionable, to say okay. the least. So it's really about reserve, manpower, and an eye on the future uh, uh, campaigns coming in the summer, mm. late spring. Okay, I just want to touch as well on the idea of peace talks because they really don't seem to be on the agenda at the moment. Hannah, we've just had the UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres in Kyiv. No mention of peace talks by him, only discussing grain and accessibility of grain to the rest of the world. Is it on anyone's minds to get Russia and Ukraine to the same table? Oh, there are different proposals coming just recently. China expressed their position. The question is the talks is just the instrument. Uh, it is not the ultimate goal. The question is what we are going to discuss at these negotiations. And here we see that the Russian position has not changed since March last year. When we had these negotiations at that time, there were much higher chances to find some compromise or concessions from two sides that what we have after the year of those uh, first uh, Belarus and then Istanbul negotiations. Mm. That's why the United Nations in general, Secretary General, took very low profile uh, during this invasion, let's be honest. And as for now, for him, the grain deal is the most important. Uh, now, this March, it should be yet one prolongation, and we are not so sure that Russia would allow this prolongation. That's why he is trying now to negotiate this. Plus, the nuclear security, the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant that you talked earlier, and uh, uh, in general, the nuclear security of all Ukrainian nuclear power plants, that's also about what United Nations is talking, humanitarian aid, some stuff like this, but they're not ready to propose anything more than this. And looks like the United Nations, as the Secretariat, is more waiting for others uh, to propose their ideas. Russia, where, uh, Pavel, where would those 
proposals come from? We've had something uh, produced from China, the 12-point peace plan that's uh, been sort of dismissed quite widely as more of a set of principles rather than a plan. What else, where else could we get ideas from? Uh, well, the Russian Kremlin says that they had the same proposals as last March. Basically, uh, they would agree for some kind of uh, uh, freezing of the situation, a permanent ceasefire based on more or less the line of control. With some maybe negotiations here and there, kind of uh, uh, quid for, uh, for pro quo or something. Mm. Which Ukraine is not accepting, and the West also is not accepting, at least present uh, Western governments, though uh, Donald Trump says that he could do, achieve peace very swiftly and most likely, again, on Russian terms, as said, on the, uh, ceasefire on the line, more or less on the line of control. So that means the positions of these parties are miles apart. Uh, mm, Russia also more or less, uh, though they praised the ch Chinese proposal, they said that the Kremlin said right now it's not practical because there's no one to negotiate with in, in, in Kiev, which means that before there are decisive ch uh, action in the coming early sp uh, late spring summer military campaign, which can change the facts on the ground. The mm. facts on the ground may change or may not. And already on the basis of that, somewhere in the summer, beginning in the autumn, there can be negotiations on uh, finding something to kind of, well, legalize the new situation on the ground as it is by then. Okay. So right now we're looking forward for a big fight. Patrick, I can see you nodding there. Do you envision peace talks by the end of this year? What will the situation on the battleground have to be like for that to take place? I think Pavel's exactly right there. You know, that it's, it's about fighting, not talking now. And mm. uh, the results of that will, uh, will inform any chance of talking. So there will be, I'd imagine, a window of opportunity come the autumn, uh, winter. But um, there's an interesting thing about timing here. You know, as Pavel mentioned, Donald Trump's statements, who knows if he'll be the president or not, but there is an election at the end of 2024, a very important one in the United States, of which United States policy could change. There is a section of the Republicans that, uh, that said that the U.S. is essentially too involved in Ukraine. Um, that will be weighing heavily on, on Ukrainian uh, timescales, I would have thought. Secondly, Russia, if it holds on, you know, it has an advantage of manpower, an advantage in being able to produce dumb weapons like artillery. Uh, and, and over time, you know, on the current trajectory, that may favour their, their outcome. So I think there's, a, there's, a, there's an awareness, essentially, that Ukraine wants to, first of all, do as best it can this summer and see where it is afterwards. Mm. Uh, and it doesn't really need to be or want to be in a long-term battle, you know, war with, with Russia because it may start to favour Russia. Again, you've got the whole point about Western commitment to it, which so far has been great. Uh, in terms of European commitment, um, very strong. But could that could that waver again? It just the the, the variables get a bit more um, unknowable as the longer Ukraine pushes this out. So I think there will be a window, hopefully in 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 the autumn. Um, I wouldn't rule out, unfortunately, depending on what happens on the battlefield, a frozen conflict mm. through um, through escalation. Uh, because we've seen that happen previously, for example, in Korea when nuclear powers are involved. So. Um, 
yeah, I, I think um, there's a lot, obviously, to pay for, and we don't have full clarity, of course. Hannah, just uh, the last thought going to you. The longer this drags on, as, as Patrick says, how concerned are you, are Ukrainians, about wavering Western support? Uh, theoretically, definitely, we depend a lot on the additional ammunition that we are receiving. But at the same time, we need to understand that it is not just the United States. Uh, with all big share that the United States uh, have now, both politically and uh, technically, but we have 54 nations in the uh, uh, Rammstein group, plus the European Union just made a decision about the joint uh, uh, procurement and production of the ammunition, what is really important for Ukraine. So the European Union and the European countries would like to play bigger role in this understanding that elections can change the situation in the U.S. That's why it seems to me that we should not just speak about the West as something united, as something single. Mm. There are different options, and Ukraine is working on this. Don't forget that Ukraine also produces a lot of weapons by ourselves, so it's not that we are just relying on the supplies from our Western partners. At the same time, Russian Federation is decreasing the amount of what they produce. It is absolutely not the same level. First of all, sanctions. The second, because uh, uh, approximately 70% of the spare parts of the missiles are, are made abroad, but not in uh, uh, Russia. And in giants, for many of the strategic missiles used to be made in Ukraine. So that's why now we see much less production. And they are also in a hurry because of this. They understand that such attacks as this night is not what they can do uh, uh, for a long time. It's been a fascinating discussion. I want to thank all of you for joining us here today. Pavel Falkenhauer, Hannah Schlest and Patrick Bury. This episode was produced by Dermot Fleming, Usama Aloni, Michael Harwood and Jimmy Gettahan. Studio sound was by Sentil Marimutu. The programme was edited by Lynn Nguyen and Joe DeFrias. Be sure to subscribe to the Inside Story podcast to catch every episode. Thank you for listening. Tune in on Friday for our next episode. Thank you.